1: This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a series of messages called Proverbs, A Beautiful Life, on the book of Proverbs, which is a book in the Bible that is full of wisdom, poetry, beauty, and instructs us on what the beautiful life is and how we can live it. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. I'm going to be reading for us in your hearing all of Proverbs chapter 30. This is perhaps the most artistically beautiful chapter of the book of Proverbs. This is poetry that is extremely compelling. And all throughout, there is a device, a Hebrew poetic device, a parallelism using numbered sets that's probably just a little different to us because it's not the way that we do poetry in our language, and our culture, but it is like building and, and intense and beautiful and glorious. Proverbs chapter 30. Let me read this for us. The words of Agur, son of Jaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor I have knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things that are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up a slave when he becomes king and a fool when he's filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces." Three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts, and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces Strife. I want to talk today about what wisdom restores. I don't believe that anyone here would disagree if I told you that the world is broken and in need of restoration. Most of us probably grasp that reality on an intellectual level, but that's probably not it. Most of us probably understand it at a gut level. Not everything is the way that it's supposed to be. There are things that are broken Things that have been unspooled, that seemingly cannot be fixed. There is all matter of brokenness that we encounter from day to day to day. And sometimes we encounter stories that remind us how devastatingly true is the statement that the world is broken. A dear friend of mine and his wife have recently brought into their home two foster daughters, two girls that they're fostering. These two are the middle two daughters of four, and the oldest and youngest sisters are both elsewhere. The way that they came to be in the foster care of my friends is that the father of these four girls was in a gang, and he was murdered in a drug-related conflict. In trying to deal with the tragedy, their mother took her four daughters and dropped them off at a fire station. The oldest was nine. The youngest was an infant. The four girls entered the foster care system at that particular time. And in this particular state where my friend lives, there's a financial benefit to the couple that will foster to adopt someone that's in the foster care system. And so a woman came along who, by her own admission, was seeking to foster to adopt because she wanted the money. For some years, the adoptive mother abused the girls until she, too, abandoned the middle two girls having initially refused to adopt the oldest, retaining the youngest as her daughter, and sending the middle two back into the foster care system. Some aunts and uncles of the girls agreed to house them for a bit, but they too, in turn, kicked the girls back out. The county is filled with family members of these two girls, cousins, uncles, aunts, but no one reaches out. No one helps. And so my friends have taken them in. And the part that is perhaps the most difficult for me to understand is this. For at least one of the girls, her professed biggest problem in her life is the man who now lovingly cares for her along with his wife. In part, because just this last weekend, he wouldn't let her eat hot Cheeto mac and cheese. For all her suffering, she says that this is the worst the story indicates how much our world needs to be restored and how each part of it needs to be restored. Gang and drug violence that claimed a father, a breakdown of a family system that should be there to support a state that, however unintentionally, incentivizes bad actors to abuse it for financial gain. And the individual foolishness that comes to believe that the loving man who now cares for you is the biggest problem of all in all of it. Every part of it demonstrates something that needs to be restored. Something on a state level, a cultural level, a family level, and an individual level. And within Proverbs 30 this morning, we're told of the need for restoration in all of those places. First, on a personal level, the correcting of individual stupidity. It also tells us how subverting wisdom leads to sowing chaos on a societal and a national level. And it speaks at the very end about how relational strife is a result of the refusal to live in accordance with wisdom. And in each part, we see how wisdom can restore. Wisdom can restore relationships. It can build strong, good societies. It can even restore your own foolishness. Wisdom, in fact, restores everything for those who will embrace it. That's what I want to talk about today, how wisdom restores everything for those who will embrace it. We'll talk about it in three parts. How wisdom restores your foolishness in verses 1 through 9 how it restores society in verses 10 through 31, and how it can restore relationships in 32 and 33 as we come to the end of this section of Scripture. So let's start with our foolishness. The writer of this particular chapter of the Bible, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, begins by crying out. The person who is writing this is a man named, uh, named Agur, who is the son of Jacob. Very common names. You're probably considering them for your own children. If you are looking at building a family, uh, you're probably like, yeah, top two are probably Agur and Jaka. Um He starts by crying out that he's weary and foolish. He doesn't possess understanding. He hasn't learned wisdom or knowledge of God. And in verse 4, he tells us what he most needs. He needs wisdom, but not just the sort of wisdom that any sage can offer to him. He needs a kind of wisdom that comes from God. And he notes that he does not know anybody who has gone up into heaven to find the wisdom that's contained there and brought it back down to him. But he says that that's what he needs. It's a wisdom not just that can be found in the earth, but a wisdom that comes from heaven. And after admitting that that's what he needs, he actually says a bunch of wise things. Now this might surprise us at first, because he starts the whole passage by saying that he is stupid, and he says that he has no understanding, and that he has not learned wisdom. He has no knowledge of the Holy One. Then he professes that he needs wisdom from heaven, and then he ends this whole first section by saying a whole heap of wise things. The first one is that every word of God proves true, and that's just a fact You can trust your life to God and his word. You can stake your very existence upon the truth of what God has spoken. If God has said it, it is going to prove true. Even if all of the evidence at one particular time in your own mind is stacked up against the reliability of God's word, God's word is the one that's going to prevail.
2: You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukemei.
1: And now more from Pastor Derek in our series called Proverbs, A Beautiful Life on the book of Proverbs, which is a book in the Bible that is full of wisdom, poetry, beauty, and instructs us on what the beautiful life is and how we can live it. Imagine how it seemed to the people of Israel as they stood facing the Red Sea behind them, all of the might of Egypt. They had heard the promise from God that he was going to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. But at that particular moment, it probably seemed to everyone who was watching that there was no way that God's word could be proved true. I mean, the seas in front of them, they're not moving that. The armies behind them, they're not defeating them. How in the world could what God said be true? And then you know what happened. God parts the sea and gives them a way through and demonstrates the fact that His Word is utterly reliable. For all of those disciples of the Lord Jesus that had entrusted themselves to Him as their rabbi, it must have seemed that God's Word couldn't possibly prove true when they watched Him bleed and die on the cross. We had hoped, one of them said, that He would be the one who was promised. But how could he be now that he has died? And yet on the third day, Jesus got up and walked out of the grave, proving again that every word of God is reliable and true, even if all of the evidence at one particular moment seems stacked against it. Stake your life on the things that God has said. There is nothing else worth entrusting yourself to but God. And then, and then, the oracle continues and says that we should not add to the words of God, lest he rebuke us and we be found a liar. And this makes sense too, right? If God's words are the ones that are utterly and ultimately and always reliable, why would we add to those words with our own thoughts? What you or I say can fail and frequently does. All I would need to do is show you my uh, NCAA brackets to demonstrate to you that I can't speak everything true into existence. Who could have predicted a 15 seed would make it into the sweet 16? My words fail again and again and again and again, but the words of God are utterly reliable, and so don't add to them with your own thoughts or inclinations. You are fallible. God is not. And then Augur makes a really wise statement. Remove falsehood from me and lying from me and remove it far from me. And then something that might not strike you as wise at first, but it is potently. He asks, hey, give me neither poverty nor riches. Why? Well, because both can be a trap. And as we hear God's word here, we recognize how the two can potentially be a trap. Those that have so much that they feel that they can rely on themselves." can start to forget the God who gave to them all of their wealth and riches. The, the one who is speaking here says, I'm nervous about having more than enough because I can start trusting myself and say, who is the Lord? On the other hand, if you're so poor that you don't have enough, it is pretty simple to want to turn to stealing and therefore profaning the name of God. And so he asks, hey, neither riches nor poverty, because if I just have enough, it means I'll be the most likely to entrust myself to God and his words, which do not fail. A lot of wisdom for somebody who says that he's a fool and that he doesn't grasp any understanding. And what Agur here reveals to us is what a wise man is. In Proverbs chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 9, we hear the call of wisdom, indicating that those who realize their own stupidity are those who might be wise. Here is this Oracle is spoken here from this man. He's demonstrating his own foolishness and lack of understanding. He also demonstrates in verse 5 that he fears the Lord, the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And therefore, he shows us at the very beginning that he is the person who has the capacity to be wise, to make his home with wisdom. And already, wisdom's restorative work is beginning, As he begins at the very start of this passage saying that he is without understanding and foolish, as he comes to the end of his part, we realize that divine wisdom has already given to him a great measure of wisdom and understanding, and the restoration is beginning. So wise is he becoming, because of the wisdom of God, divine wisdom, that he can start speaking about society more broadly. And that's what takes us to the second part, that wisdom can restore our society. Verse 10, he makes a a, a sort of one-sentence parable, and then he works into it. Do not slander a servant to his master. In verse 10, he says, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. This is an oracle here protecting the vulnerable. The oracle protects the servant against the abuse of slander. He is seeking here to protect the servant because the servant, as somebody without the high standing of the person that might be slandering him to a master, would have no recourse in court. The only response, therefore, from this servant would be to curse the one who has slandered him. And what Agor here suggests is that the Lord will judge the slanderer, and perhaps the Lord will even be the one to punch back against the slanderer. It's the first part of the restoration of the social order that wisdom can provide. You don't want social breakdown? Don't provoke those who are being governed. And then he speaks of the way that this generation that he sees subverts God's plan for the world. And they do it by denigrating authority and greedily taking advantage of the poor. This generation curses their father and their mother, we're told in verse 11. They won't give thanks to God for the ones who gave them life. Now, this isn't to say that every parent has been equally excellent, that each parent is stellar without blemish or any such thing. It isn't to say that parents are always right or that parents are infallible. It's not to say that you should never criticize or point out when they've gone wrong or done wrong. It is to say that you should honor your parents. It's to say that you should not shun the gift of life given to you by the woman who bore and gave birth to you, the father who protected you, the parents who provided stability and structure and discipline. Bless God for your parents. And if your parents were the sort of self giving Christians that raised you to know Jesus and love the church, give thanks to God for them. Bless them. It is easy for you to blame your parents for all the difficulties that you face right now. They didn't challenge you enough or they challenged you too much. They were stifling or they were too distance, distant. It's easy to rage against those that establish the rules and set the discipline all while thinking yourself clean in your own eyes. And Agur says, yeah, I see a generation of people doing that. They won't bless their parents. They'll curse their dad. They'll forgive to thank God for their mom. I don't want to be one of them. And so may God bless Rob Bucama. May God bless Danette Bukema. They'd be the first to tell you that they weren't perfect as parents, but they gave me life and a home. They taught me to know Jesus. They established faithful trajectories in my own life. May God bless them. If I were to fail to do that, I would demonstrate that I'm a part of a greedy, selfish generation. And yet that is what so many people in this generation do, cursing parents, clean in their own eyes, arrogant, lifting up their eyes, elevating their eyelids to look down on you and to shame you for failing to get what their generation understands. And when they open their mouths to decry this or that or the other thing, to elevate themselves and to demean those who aren't on their team, you'll see that their teeth are swords, that they intend to bite and devour, especially the poor and those who are in need. And you might hear this and be like, ah, yes, Augur's kids' generation were just like my kids' generation. You're like, it's amazing how it existed thousands of years before Jesus, and then it jumped all the way to my kids' generation, probably never existing from any point between that generation and this one. And the reality is that we're all implicated in all of this. As he sees a generation that fails to honor parents and takes advantage of the poor... And as we can see that in generations that exist right now, wisdom dictates to us that this is something that is characteristic of generation after generation. We're all implicated here. Any of us who reject legitimate authority, who self-justify, who talk down to others, who neglect those who are poor, who are greedy. And that's what follows here, greed. There's all manner of talk about greed here. And the first personification of it is the leech. The leech attaches itself to somebody and takes and takes and takes, never satisfied, always parasitically drawing out blood from its host. And it speaks two things. It has two daughters. Give and give. It tells us that wisdom dictates that we avoid such people. Those who will only take, never give. Attach themselves like a leech. Suck wealth or life from society rather than enriching it. Those who are all too happy to invite themselves over but never do the inviting in return. Those who pinch their own pennies but are happy to tell you how you might spend yours. Those who never have enough, and it's always your fault and your responsibility. At some point, wisdom says you have to avoid. Such a person is greedy like the leech. They will only ever say give, and they'll never be satisfied. More important, however, is that this section of scripture reminds us to avoid being such a person. It's more blessed to give than to receive, yes, but it can also be harder. And so don't be like the leech, always parasitically taking, never giving, avoid it. And then these numbered lists that make up the majority of this section of poetry begin in force. There are three things that are never satisfied, verse 15, four that never say enough. And so that's telling us that we're going to hear about four things that are never satisfied and never say enough in the context of this section of scripture telling us all about greed. And it's Sheol, the barren womb, the land that's never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Here, what the poetry is telling us is that the place of the dead will always yearn to claim more lives and will never be satisfied with them.
2: You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering 7 Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's GroundedAndGrowingRadio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema,
1: and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reform Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, may God bless you.